morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 28. Mark 1, 12 to 28. We're continuing on to talk about uh, the gospel, the coming kingdom. Mark 1, beginning at verse 12, and this is right after the baptism of Christ. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee with the boats and with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for Your Word, And we thank You for Your Spirit who brings illumination and understanding of Your Word. Father, it's been said that a big part of education is not just learning, but unlearning. And Father, I fear that perhaps this morning we have to do some unlearning as well as learning. Uh, Perhaps our understanding of Your kingdom and the devil and his minions is not in accord with Your Word. So, Father, be gracious to us, be merciful to us, and help us to align our thinking with Your Word so that we can see the world from Your vantage point and minister in light of Your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, When Jesus began His ministry, He announced the arrival of the kingdom. We saw that in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Uh, John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then we have to ask the question, what is the gospel of God? 
And we don't have to guess because we're told exactly what Jesus said. He said, the time is fulfilled. The time has finally come and the kingdom of God is at hand. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The Gospel that He just announced that the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom has arrived. Now, we also saw in previous weeks that in Mark 12, or excuse me, Matthew 12, uh, there was a man who was demon-possessed. As a result, he was blind and he was mute. Uh, Jesus cast out the demon. As a result, he could see and he could speak again. Of course, the religious leaders didn't like this because the people responded, could this be the Son of David? In other words, could this be the promised Messiah? And they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And then we're told, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So at the beginning of his ministry, he announced the coming of the kingdom. He cast out demons and he says, if I do this by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's right here in your midst. Now the question is, if Jesus is ushering the kingdom of God why did most of the Jews recognize the kingdom? And we could also ask the question, why don't many Christians today recognize the presence of God's kingdom? I think a good answer is given in Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, first of all, let me be very clear about the interpretation here. Some of your translations say, for the kingdom of God is within you. Um, I think the ESV has a better translation here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is right here among you. Um, the interpretation cannot be the kingdom of God is within you because he's talking to unbelieving Pharisees and the kingdom of God is certainly not within unbelieving Pharisees. If anything, the kingdom of darkness is within them, but not the kingdom of God. So that can't be the interpretation. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why don't they recognize it? Because they're looking for certain signs. Notice Jesus said the kingdom doesn't come with signs to be observed. Now, what kind of signs were they looking for? Well, mainly they were looking for the overthrow of Rome. They were waiting for Jesus to march into Rome overthrow their enemies so that they could be set free. 
in short, they were looking for signs that would indicate the presence of a political kingdom. Jesus did not come to establish a political kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. This is why the people were called upon to repent. Because the kingdom is at hand. And this is how you enter the kingdom, by repenting. This is why being born again is so important. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.3, unless one is born again, he will not even see the kingdom. And then in verse 5, he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of God. So this is a spiritual kingdom. You enter into this kingdom through faith, through repentance, by being born again. Now, by referring to God's kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that it doesn't have anything to do with this physical world. It does. What did Jesus tell us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Just prayed a little while ago, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, number one petition, because there's nothing more important in all the world than for God's name to be glorified, for God's name to be lifted up. And when God's name is glorified, thy kingdom come, his kingdom will come. And then what comes after that? Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So God's name is lifted up, His kingdom come, and His will is done right here on earth, even as it is in heaven. And this, this is very simple. Just think, especially those of you who are converted later in life, and to remember how wicked a life you lived before you came to Christ, just remember how things changed when you became a Christian, when you entered into God's kingdom. You had new values. You pass those values on to your kids. Your kids are living out those values. And just think of the ripple effects in God's kingdom of one person being converted. And then multiply that by this church. Multiply by the church on the corner. Multiply by the church over here. And just multiply that greatly. And I think you can see that in very practical ways. When people are converted, when they enter into the kingdom, their very lives have an impact on this world. Which is why we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We do have an impact when we're living as we should. So a spiritual kingdom does invade this world. It just does have an effect. Now, the Jews of the first century didn't see the presence of God's kingdom because they were waiting for a political kingdom because they thought their greatest enemy was the Roman Empire. They felt oppression. They felt tyranny. Uh, many of them uh, rebelled when they had to pay taxes. Uh, so they saw the great enemy as Rome and that oppressive government and those oppressive emperors. And if we could just be rid of them, then we could live as God is calling us to live. By the way, many American Christians also think that the greatest enemy is in Washington, D.C. And I don't care which side of the political aisle you're on, the greatest enemy is not in Washington, D.C. Our greatest problems are not taxation, not the crashing housing market. Our greatest enemy is Satan, sin, and death. 
Satan, sin, and death. Maybe we need to be reminded of Ephesians 6.12 where Paul talks about the spiritual battle. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We, We do not wrestle against other human beings, in other words, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, we wage spiritual warfare, but against the devil and his minions. We are involved in a spiritual warfare, not a political warfare primarily. We need to understand who the real enemy is. Rome was small potatoes compared to the empire that Jesus came to overthrow. Jesus didn't come to overthrow primarily the ruler of Rome, but the ruler over the entire world, the devil himself. And when you reread the Gospels in that light, it's amazing how they become clear and how you understand what's taking place in the story. Just briefly, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of King Jesus. We talked about this in previous weeks. A great synonym for Christ is basically King. It includes more than that, but it does include that. The beginning of the Gospel of King Jesus. And then we had the prophecy of Isaiah. And we saw that it's fulfilled in John the Baptist who prepares the way for the Lord. And he is preparing the way for the Lord who comes to rule. And let's not overlook that. Sometimes we look at prophecies and we say, oh, this is great. It shows the inspiration of Scripture. Yes. And this prophecy is fascinating because the messenger prepares the way for Yahweh, but here's John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, which has huge implications for the deity of Christ. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. But why is Yahweh in the flesh coming according to this prophecy? He is coming, as we saw in previous weeks, to rule, to rule over Israel and to rule over the world. But if he's going to rule over the world, he has to dethrone the present ruler of the world, which is Satan. And again, Satan has always been under the sovereignty of God, but he has come to overthrow the God of this age, as some passages say. Now, continuing on in Mark, in Mark 9, we see that Jesus is baptized. We mentioned that this is His anointing for ministry. And then what happens as soon as Jesus is anointed for ministry? Verse 12, The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness, and He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. What's going on? Jesus was anointed with the Spirit for warfare. That's why the Spirit came on Jesus. So He could do battle with Satan. And that's very important. Often we look at this passage of the temptation of Christ and we think the application is this is how you fight the devil. You fight the devil with the Word of God. And I think that is one application, but I don't think that's the primary application. The primary application is Jesus is taking on the ruler of this world and they're going head to head. This is why Jesus came. 
to overthrow the ruler of this world. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 17. Now, when we think of warfare, often we think of armies going against each other, right? You have one army over here, another army over here, and they go against each other, which is true. But often in the ancient world, before the armies went after each other, sometimes you would just have the leaders go against each other and the leaders would fight among themselves and that would determine the outcome of the battle. And we see that in the case of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 8 and 9. 1 Samuel 17, verse 8, we're told that he, referring to Goliath, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. We have something very similar going on in the wilderness with Jesus and Satan. They are representing each other's armies. And if Jesus wins, then his people are set free and the others are taken captive. If Satan wins, then the people of God are taken captive. So here's David and Goliath going against each other. Jesus and Satan going against each other. And this is how Jesus begins doing battle with Satan. And that's not a surprise because He has come to set God's people free. And if He's going to set the people free, He has to overthrow their ruler who has taken them captive. So Jesus spends 40 days with Satan. Then the other Gospels tell us and then Satan left him for a more opportune time. He would come back later. Jesus continues on with ministry. He calls disciples along His side. And then verse 21, And then He went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at His teaching. For He taught them as one who had authority and not as described. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? What's the answer to that question? Have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes. He has come to destroy them. Many Christians will say, well, He'll do that at His second coming. No, He came the first time to overthrow the devil and to destroy the demons. He's continuing on with ministry. He's setting the captives free. He's bringing in the kingdom. Now, you know what many think? Many think that Jesus began His ministry announcing that the time had come for the kingdom to arrive. And then throughout His ministry, He said, as we saw in Matthew 12, that the kingdom of God is in your midst. But then, Jesus went to the cross. And His enemies got the upper hand and they killed Him. And His ministry came to not. That, that's how liberals interpret the story. One German liberal, Albert Schweitzer, 
wrote a book in the early part of the 20th century called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. And this is what he writes. The Baptist appeared and cried, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that He is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheels of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. He's talking about the kingdom. Jesus recognizes Himself as the coming Son of Man. He recognizes Himself as the Messiah. And He is trying to set into motion the end of world history by ushering the kingdom. Schweitzer goes on to say, it refuses to turn. And He throws Himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes Him. This is Schweitzer describing what happens at the cross. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, He has destroyed them. In other words, instead of bringing in the Kingdom of God, it all fails. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. Very graphically, Albert Schweitzer says that Jesus tried to usher into the kingdom. He thought he could do it, but at last he failed they killed him, and now all we have is the remains of his mangled body. Very graphic way of describing the utter defeat of Jesus that took place at the cross. But we need to ask this question Was Jesus defeated at the cross? Is the cross a symbol of defeat? Or. Quite the contrary, is the cross the ultimate symbol of victory? Now, as conservatives, we will say that, of course, Jesus was victorious at the cross because it was there that He atoned for sin. But will we also say that Jesus was victorious at the cross by triumphing over the devil? by casting out the ruler of this world so that He could sit upon the throne and set the captives free? Do we also see that victory in the cross? And I hope we do because that victory is described everywhere in Scripture. And it's so clear, it's astounding that we've overlooked it. Let me give you just a few passages John 12:31 John 12 tell you what I'll begin in verse 27 Now is my soul troubled Jesus saying this because he's on his way to the cross and what shall I say Father save me from this hour but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The cross is Jesus' glory. 
great victory will occur. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And then notice what Jesus says. Now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, at least two things will happen according to this passage. Number one, the ruler of this world, the devil, will be cast out. And when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And those two go together. Because as we've seen in previous weeks, Satan is the strong man. But Jesus comes, he binds him so that he can set the captives free. So before people can be brought to Jesus, He has to overthrow the ruler of this world who's taken them captive. He has to throw them out so that all the nations can come to Jesus. And He does that through His death on the cross. That's what the cross does. The cross defeats the devil. The cross dethrones Him, casts Him out, and then results in drawing all people to Jesus. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, talking about Jesus Himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, mark that, through death, through His death on the cross, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Why did Jesus take upon Himself flesh and blood? So that He could die and in His dying, destroy the devil. Could it be any clearer? He destroyed Satan on the cross. 1 John 3. Verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus appear? And this is talking about His first advent, not His second advent. The reason why He appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evidence who the children, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 10 makes it very clear that there are in essence only two kingdoms, two people. Kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. You're either children of God or children of the devil. Now, there may be such a thing as Middle Earth, if you're a token fan, but there is no such thing as a Middle Kingdom. 
there is no such thing as a neutral kingdom. You either belong in Satan's kingdom, and he is your father, as Jesus told the Jews of his day, or you're in the kingdom of God, and you are children of God. It's one or the other. And this gets about as politically incorrect as can be. The world hates this antithesis, saying there's us and them. But the Bible couldn't be clear in saying there's two people. And it couldn't be clear in saying you're either for Jesus or you're against Him. Again, there's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. It's one or the other. And we need to take very seriously Satan's kingdom and his control over us. We need to see that our salvation is not just being set free from our sin and the penalty of sin, but also being set free from Satan. And again, that's not very popular in our modern society either. But that's a spiritual reality. And again, a spiritual reality that can't be carefully observed with our eyes, our physical eyes. Consider Ephesians 2. I hope Ephesians 2 is very familiar with us, with you. Verses 8 and 9 are among the first verses I ever memorized as a Christian. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone can boast. But notice how it begins. For you, Paul's talking to Ephesian Christians, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's that a reference to? That's a reference to Satan, friends. That's a reference to Satan. There was a time when we were all dead in our sins. We were following the course of this world. And the prince of the power of the air was at work within us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not a pretty picture. Not only were we dead in our sins, but the spirit of disobedience was at work within us. So we needed to be set free from Him. Turn to Second Timothy, if you will. Second Timothy 2, 24-26. Paul is giving young Timothy some instruction in ministry. And he reminds them in 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We minister, but we have to pray for God to bring about repentance. We can't do that. We can preach. We can exhort people, but only God and His sovereignty can bring about repentance. 
And only God can set people free from the trap of the devil. So again, this isn't a very pleasant thought, but we're dead in our sins. We are captives of Satan and we need to be set free. Jesus comes, He binds the strong man, and He sets the captives free. Have you ever read through the Gospels and wondered, boy, there's all this demonic activity taking place? I mean, nowhere else you read about demonic activity like this, except perhaps maybe in some history books about some cultures. But in the Old Testament, there's hardly any references to demonic activity. And you arrive in the New Testament and Jesus begins His ministry and immediately the devil's coming. He, he goes to synagogue on His first Sunday, as it were, and there's a man demon-possessed and the, the demons are shouting out and then He walks along the streets of Palestine and, and it seems like every other day He's met by demons or a host of demons. What's happening? Sproul said, basically, with the coming of Jesus Christ, all hell is breaking loose. What's taking place? Cosmic warfare is taking place. Because the devil and the demons understand why Jesus has come to do battle with them, to set the captives free. And that's what we see Jesus doing, casting out the demons so that people can be set free, so that they can be made whole again. And Jesus says, in plain words, this is a sign of the kingdom. When the king of the kingdom comes, he binds the strong man, he casts him out, and He sets His captives free so that they can enjoy life in all its fullness like God intended from the very very beginning. This is what God is doing all throughout the Gospels. And the climax of the kingdom is the cross. Not victory. Or excuse me, it's not defeat. It is victory. Colossians 2. Colossians 2 gives us one of the greatest pictures of this victory. Colossians 2, let me begin at verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, there are some things in verse 15 that are difficult to interpret, but let me tell you what is very clear. First of all, because of the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's talking about the spiritual rulers and authorities. He disarmed them. So picture Satan and, and all the demonic forces following him. He disarmed them. He, he took away their swords. He took away their shields. He took away their armor. He took away their chariots. So now the devil and his minions, they do battle and their boxers are their briefs. And they're standing out there. They've been stripped. They've been disarmed. That's what it says here. They've been disarmed. And He put them to open shame. 
I think it's the NIV that says he made a public spectacle of them. I love that. Mocked them. Ridiculed them. Humiliated them. By triumphing over them. Now this is a great picture that is lost on us, but it would not have been lost to Paul's first century audience. This illustration of a triumph, and again, you see this in all the commentaries, this this is very clear. This illustration of a triumph, Paul is borrowing from what Roman emperors would do when they went out into battle and they won a great victory. This is what Kent Hughes says in his commentary on this passage. He says, the image that Paul had in mind can be seen in Plutarch's, first century historian, Plutarch's description of the three-day triumph given to the Roman general Aemilius Paulus upon his return from capturing Macedonia. Now picture this. Great scaffolds were erected in the Forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectator seating. And all of Rome turned out dressed in festive white. So picture a 4th of July parade. Everybody comes out. Everybody is dressed in white for this great celebration. Three-day celebration. On the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statutes, pictures, and colossal images taken from the enemy. 259 chariots. I mean, just one right after the other. Just keep right on going. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians, as Plutarch tells it, all newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposefully with the greatest art, so as to seem to be tumbled and heaped carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, and there were bucklers and quivers of arrows, and there were swords, and it just it just all piled up on wagons. All their weapons, because they were stripped of all their weapons. Following the wagons came three thousand carrying the enemy's silver and seven hundred and fifty vessels, followed by more treasure. On the third day came the captives proceeded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Next, Macedonian gold. Then the captured king's chariot, crown, and armor. Then came the king's servants weeping with hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Next came his children. Then King Perseus himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally, came the victorious general, seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. All the army in like manner, with bows of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom songs of triumph and praise of Amelius' deeds. That's what Paul is saying. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, embarrassed them, and He triumphed over them 
victorious King Jesus coming back from His great victory. That's what the cross did. The cross cast out the ruler of this world. And this teaching is everywhere and it's plain with those that have eyes to see. Now, it is so clear that we actually have to qualify on the other side because some of you might be saying, it sounds to me like you're saying Satan is no problem today. Satan has been a done away with. Because if you take these passages, it seems to give that impression. So what we have to do is we have to take all these passages that are often overlooked and harmonize those with other ones like the ones I gave you earlier, Ephesians 6.12, we still battle against rulers and principalities. We're told that the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Okay, he's still, he's still an enemy that has to be fought. And I believe specifically in the Lord's Prayer, what we're praying is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, there, there's some debate. I know we say deliver us from evil, but Sproul and others think that it really should be translated evil one. And it's a reminder that we need to be set free from the devil as we're bringing in God's kingdom because we have a real enemy out there still. But this is what we need to see. This enemy has been dethroned. Okay, He was God of that age, but Jesus is the God and the King of this age but he still prowls around like a roaring lion and we still have to do battle till the end of time, till the second coming of Christ. Perhaps this is a good way to understand it. Uh, We could compare Good Friday, we could compare the cross to D-Day during World War II. D-Day describes the Allied forces uh, landing on the shores of Normandy, they set up a beachhead. And for all intents and purposes, the historians tell you that World War II was over once the Allies landed on that beach and established a beachhead. But the war would continue on for almost another year. And within that time, the enemy would still fight. People would still die until VE Day victory in Europe and they were set free from the Nazis when they finally uh, surrendered unconditionally. The cross, again, is D-Day. For all intense purposes, the battle is over. The battle was decisively won at the cross. But the skirmishes continue on. The battles continue on. We have to fight. People will even die. But when Christ comes back, that will be VE Day. Once once and for all, everybody will be set free, liberated, and then Satan will be cast in a lake of fire forever and ever. But what we need to see is that the cross, contrary to Schweitzer and others, the cross did transform world history. Jesus did turn the world the wheel of history. He did usher in the kingdom. 
He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and He will sit there until all His enemies have been made His footstool and we will continue to fight on until the second coming and the war comes to a decisive close. But this means that we should wage warfare optimistically. We really do know the outcome of the battle. And greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. So yes, there's a battle. Yes, we have to be prepared. But let's know that as we go forth, the kingdom of God will be established. Satan's kingdom will give way more and more and more to the end of time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the cross and the victory that was accomplished there. Satan bruised Jesus' heel, but Jesus crushed Satan's head at the cross. Father, so we celebrate the cross. We boast in the cross. And thank You that Jesus rose from the dead three days later you vindicating Him for His work on the cross. And thank You that 40 days hence, He ascended into heaven and sat down at Your right hand. And we're so thankful that He sits there right now until all His enemies will be made a footstool. And now we need to go forth with the Gospel of the Kingdom. And we need to let the nations know that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ both Lord and King. And we need to call people to confess that He is Lord and to bow their knees to His Lordship. Father, we thank You for this glorious Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen.